Saudi Arabia is betting big on sport. Whether it's an aggressive takeover of golf, inroads into the Premier League, or eye-watering the expensive deals for some of football's biggest stars, it's already transforming the landscape. But it's not been without controversy. Critics have accused the Saudi regime of attempting to launder its reputation, long tarnished by years of human rights abuses at home and abroad. But the criticism has done little to stop the Saudi juggernaut. Welcome to the iPodcast, where this week we're digging into what the Gulf state's ambitions are, the accusations of sports washing, and the questions being raised about what sport does and doesn't mean for fans. I'm joined now by our Northern football correspondent, Mark Douglas, and our chief football writer, Daniel Storey. Thank you so much for joining us. Give us an overview, first of all, of what kind of inroads Saudi is making into football. Firstly, this summer, Saudi government slash PIF, their public investment fund, announced that they would own 75% of four of the biggest clubs in Saudi Arabia and the Saudi Pro League, which effectively was an aim to provide them with enough funds so that they could make a play on big name European players and establish that league as, well, they say top 10 league. I don't think there is any ceiling on their ambition. They followed that up with said mad dash of of spending on high level, big name players from big European clubs. This, I think we could say, is part of a a greater ploy. Saudi have this vision 2030 to, to diversify away from existing industry and they're placing sport at the very heart of that. Uh, I think the ultimate end goal, or their end goal, would be to host the World Cup in 2030 or 2034. Wow. And, and of course, this comes off the back of a truly sort of seismic moment a couple of years ago when when they managed to get a takeover of Newcastle United over the line, which is obviously, I think, a slightly different thing to what they're doing this summer. But the fact that that has been successful, that Newcastle United are in the Champions League next season in their first full season after Saudi ownership, I think has given them, while I think it was it was always the big plan, I think it's given them an, an awful lot of confidence to take this next step. And they are attracting some big names, aren't they? I mean, Ronaldo is is one who's gone over. What What's the appeal for them? Is there a very obvious answer here? Yeah, I think money is the way to kind of break down the door. There's no doubt about that. But I think as the different players have sort of started to join that league, there is now a sort of vestige of legitimacy about the league in, in a way that there probably wasn't when Ronaldo took the money in January, which was effectively what he, what he did do. I mean, the, the kind of figures are absolutely eye-watering. I did a story last week about uh, an approach that had been made to the Fulham manager, Marco Silva, for £17.1 million a year, which is over £300,000 a, a week, which is absolutely staggering oh money. I mean, pre- Premier League footballers and Premier League managers have, been, have always been well paid. But that is, you know, I mean, no Premier League club, no club in La Liga would, would go anywhere near that. As the summer's gone on and they've started to take players, you know, who are a bit younger and kind of in the prime of their careers. So like the likes of Ruben Neves, who's left from Wolves as well. There is now the idea that there is some momentum with this league. And I think that people will be watching it from an athletic point of view next year as well. But I think, you know, we've got to be honest, that the, the reason is is money, the money and the kind of 
finances on offer in, in Saudi Arabia are are the driving force at this point in the project. I mean, it's not just players, is it, who are being sort of lured by the massive amounts of money coming from the Gulf states. Newcastle obviously went from relegation battle to finishing in the top four in just a year and a half of Saudi ownership. I don't want to talk much about the treble as a Manchester United fan. However, I will mention the Abu Dhabi-owned Man City, obviously dominating the Premier League for sort of six years now. Is it the case that whoever is backed by this vast amount of wealth is just going to head to the top? And do some fans feel that maybe that's a little perhaps unfair or unsustainable? Yeah, I think to answer the question very simply, I think, yes, there is a a weight that money provides. And, and we're talking, you know, as Mark says, we're talking about vast wealth here, almost unlimited wealth in football terms. What that kind of money does is it it acts as an insurance policy that other clubs don't have. I, I still believe, probably romantically, maybe misguidedly, that there is still an ability for clubs to overachieve in, in the Premier League, mm-hmm. but it offers an insurance against failure. It means if you have half a bad season, you can go out and spend X amount of money to address that and address it pretty concretely. Yes, fans of other clubs I presume are jealous. I think jealousy is is more of an interesting term than kind of dislike because we've seen at Manchester United this summer a fan base fairly split about the prospect of Qatari ownership. And I think on a personal view, the thing I dislike most in a football sense about these state ownerships is that is not that in and of themselves they are to be disliked, although there are things that I do find fault with, it's that it sets the tone for every other football fan to think, well, if, if they can do it, why can't mm. we keep up with the Joneses? Why can't we have a state takeover? It, it, it greases the wheels of further state takeovers. And that eventually will lead to a situation where maybe six or seven clubs in England are state-owned and those six or seven clubs are routinely the top six and seven clubs. Let's talk more about what you described there, what you touched on, which is essentially kind of sports washing. The idea which we saw the Qataris accused of with the World Cup, that if you kind of pump a lot of money into sports, it's a way of rebranding, perhaps rehabilitating your image. Is that what's happening here? For me, I think there's definitely an attempt by Saudi Arabia and and, and other clubs as well to, to wield soft power. They're fairly unapologetic, I think, sometimes about some of the values that there are in those states. I think we saw at the World Cup, me and Daniel were both there. There was a real pushback the closer it got to the World Cup. The idea that they should feel apologetic about not embracing, for example, LGBTQ plus causes. But what they do really want, and I think is where maybe there is an element of shifting towards some kind of a Western viewpoint, is is soft power. You know, they want to be seen as somewhere culturally that is aligned to things that the whole world likes watching and likes being part of. So, for example, if they've got a really strong domestic league that players that, that we recognise go to and events are happening in Saudi Arabia, as, as it did in Qatar, you know, it gives them a lot of cachet. It gives them name value, recognition, and people suddenly Saudi Arabia becomes normalised as a sort of tourist venue, as somewhere that people in the West are much more familiar with than, say, people from an older generation as well. So I think I think it's the soft power and the, the kind of cultural cachet that they're looking for more than necessarily, you know, looking to, to sports wash some of the things that some of the values that we that we don't share. Yeah, I think the one thing we can say is that sport in general is a is a very, very effective vehicle for that soft power grab. If Saudi Arabia bought your favourite washing powder and you had reservations about their regime, you might well change your washing powder brand. If they buy your football club or if they invest in your football league, 
or if their money buys a player for your club, sports customers are inherently uniquely loyal. And I think they know that. I think that they, they are very acutely aware that with investment in sport comes almost like a tacit acceptance of their presence as long as things are going well. Well, let's talk about the fan reaction to this. I mean, Mark, in particular, in your patch, you're our northern football correspondent. As we both know, up north, clubs have a huge connection to the community. How has the Saudi ownership been received by fans in clubs like Newcastle? I think, in, you know, you have to be perfectly honest about, about the reaction of Newcastle fans up here is being joy and elation, actually. You know, I think as depressing as some other fans see that, there are a lot of reasons, I think, for that. One, obviously, their previous owner, Mike Ashley, who who owned Sports Direct, was a particularly bad owner for Newcastle United. He was an owner that actually was quite old-fashioned in a lot of ways. He wanted to make Newcastle sustainable. He wanted it to basically become a club that only spent what it brought in, which, you know, in the in the modern way of the Premier League is just not acceptable. It's not gonna it's not gonna win you anything. It's not gonna create memories. It's and and it's just totally, totally old-fashioned. So there were definitely the conditions there for the Saudi Arabian PIF to come in and get some easy wins. They have put the framework in place for for Newcastle to become successful. And it has been a a huge success in terms of the results on the field and also off the field. They've started to build a lot of the structures and invest in a lot of things that have brought success. So the reaction's been absolutely, I think, pretty much unequivocal. There's been some fans who've who've voiced concerns about human rights and also about the the very notion of state ownership. There's a group called uh, Newcastle Fans Against Sports Washing, which has been quite vocal but I think you have to be honest it's quite a fringe group at the moment so you have to be honest it's been really positive about the takeover and I think they've done the right things and said the right things the the people in charge of the club it kind of goes back to what we're saying about you know that you cannot overestimate in this country just how much football fans desperately want their teams to win and that's partly because the club has been around for a long time and you know there's kind of generational pass down of support but it's also because English football kind of hardwired people to believe and to assume that football matters more than in and of itself. You know, it's a sport, it's a game, but it's also now an obsession that was driven by mass TV appeal, 24-hour news channels, kind of the obsession with transfer culture. All of this built this tornado of desperation for our clubs to be at the top of their divisions. It isn't enough to just survive now. You have to try and win everything. And to win everything, you need a huge amount of money. And for a huge amount of money, you need a wealthy owner. And for a wealthy owner, the wealthiest owner, you look to PIF, who are the wealthiest football club owners in the world. I think what was what was interesting about Newcastle, and it was a kind of unique case in point in a way that you know we talked a little bit about Ashley and you know I think some of the ideas that Mike Ashley had were actually good ones, but his communication and the way that he did things was so poor at Newcastle that, as I said, it created this idea that there was, you know, there was a hopelessness about the club. And that was because the people who who ran it didn't communicate. There weren't people who plugged into the community. And I think, as I said, what PIF have done, well, obviously you talk about the yearning for success. And I think that is obviously an incredibly important thing. But you do also see the idea that if people communicate well and they bring people on board with the football club, which a lot of, you know, a lot of clubs have done well without Saudi ownership. We look at Brentford, we look at Brighton. I think anybody who's come in and take over Newcastle would have would have had a, a long honeymoon period and would have had a, a period of grace. It just happens that when, when it's PIF and they have the money to go out and buy some of the best players in Europe, it obviously accelerates the whole process. Well, let's talk about the club, sadly, winning everything. 
Saudi is not the only Gulf state becoming involved in British football. As we have discussed, Abu Dhabi own Manchester City, who have been sweeping things up in, I have to admit, style of late. Their fans aren't exactly having a bad time, are they? No, they're not. And Manchester City, because they were the first de facto state ownership, certainly of a, of a Gulf state in English football, they were given a grace period, I suppose, that Newcastle haven't been given. In 2008, the time of the Manchester City takeover, sports washing as a concept was not really widely known. Over time, that has changed as we've understood the reasons for that takeover and also maybe some of the the practices used by Abu Dhabi in the development of that area of Manchester as well. There's also inevitably, when you start winning things, there will be more eyes on you. One of the kind of paradoxes of sports washing is that it's done to kind of create a reaction. It's done to diversify away from other things your regime may be notorious for. And yet the more you actually are successful, which is the aim, the more people talk about that. And that is certainly the case at Manchester City. I was just going to say the big thing as well with Manchester City that we kind of forget, they made a lot of mistakes when they first started as well. The reason a lot, I think a lot of the focus is now on Manchester City is because they are this all-conquering machine that do things so well. And I think picking up on the theme of Newcastle as well, what happened with Manchester City is that they got in the best people. So Tzatziki Begerinstein, Pep Guardiola, Ferran Sorres, these people coming in and turning Manchester City into the Barcelona of the Northwest. That changed everything. And I think that is something that Newcastle learned from. So they went out and got the best people. That's when the focus then becomes on human rights. And as, as cynical as it sounds, because Manchester City is so good and they're going to dominate for so long unless the financial fair play charges Don't are say proven. that to me, Mark. <laughs> I'm sorry. It just feels like at the moment there are... You know, I think when Pep leaves, when Pep leaves, we might see a sort of re- realignment. But unfortunately, at the moment, they look so invincible. You kind of think, you know, then I think football fans start to prod at the other stuff. Mm. And that sounds cynical. And it sounds like, you know, we should all look at our moral compass from from the outset. But unfortunately, it has become weaponized. The human rights thing has become weaponized by rival fans who have said, yes, you've done it, but you've done it with these concerns as well. And I think that, unfortunately, you know, as much as, as Daniel said, you know, it, it, we live in a quite a cynical world as football fans, you know. I think if they weren't very good, I don't think we'd be talking about human rights around it. That's a good point. I mean, we talked about the the reaction of Newcastle fans and Man City fans, which we're saying really has been overwhelmingly positive. What about in the rest of the game? What about the rest of the clubs? Is there a kind of awareness of this? Is there a desire to talk about this? How is the wider footballing community responding to it? Football is, is unique because it is made up of these mass bodies, the clubs, the federations, the leagues. But in effect, very few of them talk to each other effectively. Football opinion is generally expressed through individuals and individual supporters will each make a choice. And, you know, we make moral choices every single day. And some people understandably think, well, football's kind of my escape from that. So maybe I don't want to suddenly have to like alter my feelings on my football club because of a moral viewpoint. Maybe I want football to be different from that. The business of football is football and all I care about is the results on the Saturday and that's all I'm going to focus on. Mm. And there are people who are not obsessed by football who would do that for the same reason. They think, well, I, you know, football's just a, it's just a thing on a Saturday for me. I don't need to get dug down into geopolitics when thinking about it. But there are also fans who think this is bigger than just my club. This is the future of football that's at stake here. This is the future of our national game that's potentially at stake. English football supporters as a whole, and this is very sweeping, are 
awful at clubbing together on the things that unite them. So nothing will change because we view everything through the prism of our own club support. And Manchester United is a really perfect example because Man City are very successful when you have Manchester United fans saying, well, yeah, but you've won it because you've got all this money from Abu Dhabi. And then as soon as there's a chance for Qatari takeover, some of those fans think, well, yeah, but we might as well have a go then, if that's the way to do it. Yeah, there's definitely that conversation going on at at United at the moment, isn't there? I mean, my dad is a raging United fan, not a fun position to be in right now. And he has real concerns about it and a kind of wider disappointment, I think, seeing particularly the young players being coaxed over to places like Saudi Arabia just for the money. But he's also a bit annoyed because the Saudis are poaching people off his fantasy football team. So (laughs) (laughs) there's kind of different levels of concern, I think, across the footballing field. Do we have any indication about beyond the economics or the the soft power elements whether Saudis have any desire to change the footballing kind of league as we know it or or do anything differently yeah yeah they they, they definitely do everything they are doing is part of a process and Mark may know more specifics than me but a a very obvious hunch I would say that the next steps for for Saudi Arabia are a pushing towards that World Cup bid whether that's a very much likely a joint bid and Qatar you know we talked about the acceleration of these states almost following each other Qatar winning that 2022 World Cup bid and hosting it is huge for the region it's huge for Saudi Arabia because it, it accelerates their own ambitions on that And the other potential offshoot of this, which I think is almost inevitable at this point, is that they will start to buy percentages in leagues. The inevitable offshoot of this is going to be investment in leagues. If you can imagine a situation where they buy 40% of La Liga and therefore they have a stake in the broadcasting rights, at that point, that soft power in a sporting term begins to look fairly cemented. Daniel and Mark's coverage of sports goes deeper than just the results to find out what actually matters to players, teams and fans. To support this work and to keep up to date with the latest news from around the world, consider a subscription. We've got a special offer on, which means you can try I for just £1 for a whole month this summer. Head over to inews.co.uk forward slash podcasts to get this deal. I for open minds. Subscribe today. As we've learned, the Saudis are making major inroads into a number of different sports. But the question many will be asking is why? To explain more, we spoke to Simon Chadwick, who's a professor of sport and geopolitical economy at Schema Business School in Paris. I'm a guy born and brought up in the northeast of England into a football-loving community. And my engagement, I guess, with the, the sport was a sociocultural one. And, and for many Europeans in particular, probably South Americans too, our love for particularly a sport like football is born of our parents, of, of, of the places we were, we were born and went to school, of, of our friends but of what we saw as we we progress through the 20th century i think is is that beginning to change and and certainly in the last quarter of the 20th century what we had was a more american orientation if we could put it that way north american orientation whereby instead of being sociocultural sport became more commercial keep in mind that football shirt sponsorships weren't allowed in english football until 1978 so most of the 20th century had passed before sponsorships were even allowed 
And we've begun to see investors, decision makers from what we might call the global south. So places like Saudi Arabia, Dubai, Qatar, China and many others beginning to exert an influence over sport. And very often these countries, it has been underpinned by state involvement. And so what we now have is if we think about you know, the City Football Group or we think about the McLaren F1 team owned by Bahrain, we think about boxing bouts being organised by Saudi Arabia, there are state goals, there are state influences underpinning what's happening. This is neither you know, kind of European sociocultural, nor is it North American commercial. It's something that is new and different. So what you have with Saudi Arabia and what you also have in Qatar and the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain are economies and countries that are hugely dependent upon oil and gas revenues. Typically between 40 and 50% of their annual revenues are derived from oil and gas. And, and this has always been an issue. When prices fluctuate, it has a dramatic effect upon the extent to which these countries can invest or can spend. So this is not recent. This is not a recent phenomenon. But of course, what we now have or what they now have is the additional complication of being countries that produce natural resources or have extractive natural resource industries. And of course, the world is kicking back against fossil fuels. They're in a very, very difficult, very precarious position. If you look at the projections for oil consumption, it looks as though oil consumption will increase up to 2045 and then it will begin to decrease significantly. So in essence, these countries have got probably got about 20 years at most to wean themselves off on this dependence upon oil and gas. At the same time, what you've got to keep in mind is productivity rates are relatively low in these countries. You've also got this kind of entrepreneurial culture is absent. It's not common for Saudi Arabians to be creating businesses and then taking those businesses global in the same way as you might see, for example, in the United States or even China for that matter. So there are, there are a number of economic dimensions to this. There are also some social issues. We think about gender equality in particular. And also there are differences between the east of Saudi Arabia and the west of Saudi Arabia. The west of Saudi Arabia is predominantly sunny. East of Saudi Arabia, predominantly Shia. And so sport is a means of, of engaging in social cohesion building as well. So certainly there are some interesting social elements there. But what's also important to keep in mind is, is that socially and politically, what we're beginning to see in Saudi Arabia is a new social contract being negotiated because the Saudi Arabian population is a Gen Z population. 70% of its population is aged under 35 these are people who've been born and brought up with Snapchat and Instagram and Netflix and YouTube and Real Madrid and Chanel handbags and Gucci shoes and, and all the rest of it. And, and so one of the things that the government is mindful of is the Generation Z community doesn't become disaffected. One of the things that we do know, of course, about Saudi Arabia is it's, it's not got a good reputation in, in some parts of the world. Um, but what we do know is that prominent members of the global sporting community we are less likely to question them and we're less likely to think badly about them. So there are absolutely image and reputational benefits associated with being a prominent member of the global sporting community. Saudi Arabia wants us to think about and to talk about the, the, the country in, in very, very different ways to the ways in which we've talked about it so far. Some people might call it soft power. Some people might call it sport washing. Uh, I prefer to call it image and reputational benefits associated with in, investing in sport.
Back to you guys, Mark and Daniel. Let's talk about golf. Golf is a sport I follow much less closely. It may be no surprise to hear. So walk us through the Saudi involvement in golf. And that has been quite an interesting story, hasn't it? I think what's been fascinating in golf, at first, I think there was a it was an attempt to invest in the PGA Tour, which is the established golf tour, which most of the professionals play on. And there was an attempt to invest in that and become if you will, kind of partners in that, that got rebuffed. So what PIF decided to do was set up a an entirely separate league called Live Golf, which was PIF funded. And it was hugely controversial because they started taking some of the biggest names in golf. Probably mostly it was middling players or players who were reaching the end of their careers on eye-watering sums. I mean, we talk about the big kind of money that was uh, that's being offered to footballers. I think Tiger Woods was offered, you know, over a billion to go and play in oh Live Golf because he would have been the, uh, the the biggest uh, the biggest name. That oh, it was absolutely humongous kind of money that was that was on the table for these players so but the PGA then there was a huge backlash from the authorities and the PGA banned all these players from playing on their tour if they were if you were involved in live golf you were no longer allowed to to play on the PGA tour and uh, they were also banned for playing in the Ryder Cup as well there was then a series of very expensive litigation between PGA players and the PGA tour and live golf and it looked like that was going to rumble on for for years and years, and there'd be embarrassing revelations as part of that, as part of those uh, of those court cases. But then we had about six weeks ago the seismic announcement that rather than being adversaries, they were going to become uh, a merged tour, so that Live Golf and PGA would start to work on plans together. And we're still, I think, you know, coming to terms with what happened there. But I think the simple explanation is that it became very, very expensive for the PGA Tour to start to try and match the money that the Live Golf were offering and also to go through these extremely expensive court cases. It's a really interesting intersection, if you will, of of politics, money and sport. Mm. It feels like a line in the sand for the, the future of other sports. You know, we've already heard rumours that PIF have been in conversations with the ATP Tour in tennis about a similar deal and it it sends the message that the money will win out in the end. Well, it doesn't bode well, does it, for possible regulations in football? I'd like to kind of get your thoughts really on what can be done on this. I mean, Gary Neville has suggested that the Premier League should put an instant embargo on transfers to, to Saudi to ensure, and I quote, the integrity of the game isn't being damaged. How much do you agree with him that that's a kind of good solution? But also, how much do you agree with him on on the significance of the Saudi takeover and whether the game is being damaged with that regulation? I disagree with Neville on that we should ban sales to Saudi Arabia. I think I think there are two different points of element here. First is the rise of the Saudi League, which I don't think we can do anything to stop. And I, I don't necessarily think we can or should do anything to stop. I don't think it would win. I don't think there's a, a, a legal case to be made that you can stop players going to Saudi Arabia. But in terms of the state takeovers, the purchase of clubs and or leagues, I think there is something we can do. When I kind of write about my reasons for a dislike of state ownership, one of the answers you get back regularly is that this is a kind of sort of vaguely kind of European protectionism. Oh, you just don't want you know, Arab states owning football clubs. We have to be really clear here. This is not just about Arab states owning football clubs. This is about any state owning a football club. If the UK government or the Italian government or the Spanish government wanted to buy a Premier League football club, I would be dead against that as well because it's about the issue of state ownership, not where they're from. And I think that's where the Premier League needs to take a stand. And if it takes the independent regulator, the much talked about, much delayed, oasis in the desert, independent regulator, then 
that has to be a part of that because I think that's the most serious thing affecting the future of, of English football. And, and unfortunately, I'm going to be a little bit of a cynical presence here and say that as long as they are armed with money, I just don't think there will be a desire to stop them from owning football clubs because football is, you know, is the main motivation of the people who who are in power in football is is money. You know, the only thing that matters, I think, to a lot of the people at the very top of the game is is money. And I really hope that the independent regulator does come in and starts to put some form of um, some form of kind of at least a framework um, in place that, that that governs these things. The most important thing and the thing that, that I would look to and, and a realistic thing is some form of transparency. I think what I've found really depressing about some of the ways that, that, that these things have done is that there hasn't been that transparency around the process. You know, we still see now the financial fair play charges that Manchester City have been levied with. We don't have any details about that. I think football needs to be a lot more open and a lot more transparent. So if we do have state ownership, we need to know where the money's coming from. We need to know who the people are behind it, who's involved in it, and ultimately what the aim of this is. Sheikh Jassim is a really interesting case in point. I think that will be fascinating what will happen next if the Glazers decide to sell to him because we don't know anything about him. You know, I think there's three pictures in public of him. You know, I deal with that quite a lot. And the people who are acting on behalf of him, who are talking about that bid, they are PR companies. They are people employed by him to talk on his behalf. But we don't know anything about him. And he could own the most important football club in the whole of the UK. Now, for me, I don't think that's a particularly good position to be in. Compare and contrast that to Jim Ratcliffe, who's the other person trying to buy Manchester United. And we have a real, you know, for me, a jarring discrepancy there. And I think that's what we have to concentrate on is if we are going to get foreign countries coming into English football, they have to be transparent. We have to know, we have, there has to be some accountability for what they're going to do to, to the game as well. Well, that's all we've got time for. It's been a genuinely fascinating discussion. Thank you both so much. And not only because I'm a slightly bitter Manchester United fan, but I really do appreciate you coming on. I mean, it sounds like this is moving incredibly quickly and we will have to get you back in a few months' time to see how it's all panning out. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much for joining us. I'm Molly Blackall. You can follow me on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at molly.blackall. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. <laughs>